Dear Elizabeth, are we Dear Elizabeth, about two miles out in the rocky Dear Elizabeth, Dear Elizabeth, Dear Elizabeth. Grand Lake Lodge, Grand Lake, Colorado, Monday, August 5th, 1963. Dear Elizabeth, Today we came over from Estes to the west side of the park, over Trail Ridge Road, with an hour's stop in the tundra, where we saw several kinds of plants we had not seen at other places. The west slope is said to have a number of different species. Don't let the uncharacteristically vague references to different species fool you. Emma Lucy Brown, who wrote this letter, knew plants more than any average tourist. In fact, the botanist best known for her expertise in the eastern forests of the United States was so well respected by her peers that she was elected the first female president of the Ecological Society of America in 1950. In 1963, the 74-year-old explorer was on her last collecting and research trip to the American West, and as usual, she was accompanied by her longtime research companion and older sister, Annette Brown. Annette, then 79, was a prolific and acclaimed entomologist who, like her sister, was no stranger to leadership and service in science and research. She was the first woman to earn a Ph.D. at the University of Cincinnati. That was in 1911 and she served as vice president of the Entomological Society of America in 1926. Welcome to Dear Elizabeth, a serial podcast about the barrier-shattering scientists and sisters, Annette and Lucy Brown, as told to one of the many scientists they inspired. The scientist and educator who received these letters, Elizabeth Brockschlager, left her collection to the Lloyd Library and Museum in downtown Cincinnati. I'm Elissa Yancey, and I've been researching the Brown sisters for years. Annette and Lucy, who never married, grew up in the same city I did and earned all of their degrees, including PhDs, at the university where I was both an alumna and professor. Their legacy lives on in species and natural landmarks named in their honor and the research and activism helped preserve tens of thousands of acres of forests in Ohio and Kentucky. Yet they, like most women scientists of the early 20th century, and even today, are hardly household names. Their letters provide rare glimpses into their research that wove together worlds of insects and plants in diverse ecosystems across the country, building understanding of where and why species could and could not flourish. As she drove along the Continental Divide in 1963, even the joy of documenting tundra-tough plant species she had not encountered before couldn't cover Lucy's frustration over the weather for long. The daily forecast was as much on her mind as any species on the winding Trail Ridge Road in Colorado. After a stop in the windswept tundra, they had meadows to look forward to, or so Lucy hoped. Then on a few miles and down a thousand feet to Powder Lake at about 11,000. With open subalpine meadows, stream sides, and spruce fir woods. 
beautiful flowers, but the rain started. So on to a larger parking area where we looked out on flowers and rain and clouds obscuring everything. The Colorado mountains are supposed to have afternoon showers of short duration, but ever since Thursday, it is more than showers. Looking out on flowers was definitely not the Brown sisters' preferred way of spending a day in the field. Though never explicit, their goal to document species of plants and insects in the West relates directly to their much more extensive research in the eastern United States. In the Appalachian Mountains closer to their home, Lucy and Annette spent decades exploring ridges that exposed what was left of peaks that had been shortened by 100 million years of erosion. Their more typical treks through the middle of the Appalachian Range topped out closer to the 3,200 feet of Pine Mountain, Kentucky, than the summits three times that size in the younger Rockies. Lucy, whose theories about species and ecosystems were always grounded in her expertise in geology, knew that the Appalachian Mountains had once been as tall as the Rockies that she and Annette were so eager to explore. Their focus on systems, from the rocks and soil on up, must have made the Rockies an especially exciting journey. Could the subalpine landscapes out west offer a glimpse into the distant past of their beloved eastern forests? For both Lucy and Annette, creating a detailed historical record could help not only build the scientific understanding about the country's range of ecosystems, but also the importance of preserving them. In the summer of 1963, though, the weather kept getting in the way. Hear how Lucy described it. Friday, we were chased down from Trail Ridge by 1 p.m. Rain all the way down and all evening. Saturday morning, we drove a few miles and walked a wide trail in spruce woods with clouds down about to the treetops. Then for the afternoon, montane meadows near the road and only a few miles from the motel. I'll admit I had to double check the term montane meadows to be sure I hadn't misread Lucy's writing for the word mountain. But it turns out I read correctly. Montane ecosystems are amazing in their diversity which explains why Lucy and Annette would feel the pull toward them and toward documenting the variety of life they attract. Montane roughly translates into ecosystems that take root on mountainsides. In the Rocky Mountain National Park, they can be flat meadows carpeted with wildflowers or lush with food for moose and elk. They can also be subalpine forests, thick with evergreens like Lucy described. Higher up the mountainside, they can transform into tundras, windy and dry, with low-growing plants and perennials accustomed to the hard-packed soil and the lower temperatures. The browns explored them all. Sunday, we took a beautiful trail, first across flowery meadows, then yellow ponderosa pine woods, rocks, meadows, shallow lakes, then a climb to Cub Lake, our destination, where we hoped to spend an hour or two, eat lunch, look for new flowers, etc. But before we got there, thunder. So we ate chocolate and a few grapes and started back, two and a half miles to the car. Thunder and black low clouds in three directions, but no rain on us until after we reached the car, then rain. 
let's take the time to pause and envision the sisters, both well into their 70s, heading toward Cub Lake, elevation approximately 8,000 feet, on a hike that today has an elevation lift of more than 700 feet. It's a moderate hike on any day, what with rocks and woods to navigate. But Lucy and Annette were always game, and always prepared. Though their full-day plans were thwarted by the thunder and impending rain, they enjoyed what they could, including chocolate and grapes. They were also not going to let go of this opportunity to explore the landscape that kept teasing them with its beauty and inaccessibility. As Lucy writes, We sure wish for a break in the weather. Because we could not get around where it was so beautiful today, we plan to drive back as soon as weather permits, 17 miles and nearly 3,000 feet up. We do not want to go on west without seeing more of this beautiful Rocky Mountain National Park. We would rather cut short some of the other mountain areas. Expect to start west on Thursday through Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, and then Moab, Utah, which we may then reach about this time next week. An hour ago, there was blue sky. Now, 5.30, all clouds again. Love, Lucy and Annette. Note that in this letter, Lucy signs for herself and her sister, and also adds the warm sign-off, love, to Elizabeth. The note of affection hints at Lucy's softer side, one rarely seen by anyone other than those closest to her. And even though it's about to rain, again, the two have come to an important decision. If changing their itinerary is what it takes to enjoy the Rockies and the Continental Divide, that's what they'll do. It feels a relief to have made the decision and written the letter, all before heading out to dinner. Luckily for Lucy and Annette, a better day was just around the corner. Hear Annette tell how it happened. Sunset Motel, Wednesday evening, August 7th, 1963. Dear Elizabeth, Yesterday's trip was one in a lifetime. After breakfast, we went back up to the Continental Divide at Milner Pass, altitude 10,758. At first, we went along a little mountain brook flowing into the Cache Laputa River. The flowers were beautiful, among them a primula about the color of Habanaria paramorna, still in bloom, apparently because there had been a deep accumulation of snow. Seeing a blooming primula in August would be a real treat. The flower typically blooms not long after the mountain snows melt, not nearly three months later. The primula peri is, according to the National Park Service, quote, one of the showiest species in the monument, growing to over a foot tall with a number of stems bearing large, deep pink flowers, unquote. But that was just the beginning of the adventure, Annette explained. Then we started up the trail leading to the summit of Specimen Mountain. We knew we could not make the top, over 12,000 feet, as it was said to be a six-hour trip, round trip. We passed through magnificent subalpine meadows, as Lucy says, the finest she had ever seen, finer than those on Mount Rainier. Great tufts of subalpine larkspurs, short ravines of dark blue flowers, the plants two or three feet high. Many species of erigeron, some of these beautiful big blue daisies. 
Remember that deep accumulation of snow that Annette mentioned earlier? Turns out that also helps support healthy tufts of subalpine larkspurs, a sturdy species that can grow up to six feet tall and survive for more than 70 years. A late thaw would lead to a late bloom and allow these deep blue and purple perennials to avoid damage of early season frosts. Just one more note about those brilliant blue and purple flowers on display on this one-in-a-lifetime day. The eregeron, or native wild daisies, would be of particular interest to Annette, more because of the insects that eat their leaves than for their colorful blooms. While Lucy was known for her expertise in botany and plant species identification, Annette specialized in documenting, and in many cases discovering, species of tiny moths known as leaf miners. Leaf miners are fascinating and aptly named little creatures. The microscopic larvae of these moths eat thread-like channels through layers of plant leaves before emerging as minuscule moths. Those moths are essential, not just because they're fascinating, but because they're prime food for birds, the same birds that become pollinators for plants. In Annette's view of the world, Microlepidoptera, those tiny moths, are the key to the survival of not only plant and animal species, but entire ecosystems. Together, the sisters' complementary scientific obsessions made their travels together so important. From a strictly scientific perspective, their research subjects reinforced one another. At the same time, from a societal perspective in the early and mid-20th century, two single sisters traveling together provided the safety of companionship from undue scrutiny and freedom to explore and learn alongside one another, as they had from their youth. Oh, and this is probably as good a time as any to mention that Annette amassed a meticulously curated collection of 30,000 moths that she kept in the sisters' farmhouse. She donated it to the Academy of Sciences in Philadelphia before she died. But back to 1963 and that impressive August day in the Rocky Mountains. Annette, who is, as you may recall, 79 years old, continues. Between the meadows, we passed upward through beautiful subalpine forest of spruce and fir, then out into patches of meadow. Slow going, of course, because of the high altitude. The vegetation changed as we went up, and finally the trees became small and windblown. At last we emerged into tundra, the ground everywhere flower-covered. At last, at about 11,500 feet, we decided we had gone high enough for two old ladies and started back. In addition to the excitement sparked by the dramatic changes in ecosystems the sisters had seen before they hit their halfway mark, let's take just a minute to recognize that these septuagenarian sisters had climbed nearly 1,000 feet in elevation. That's still the limit for any altitude change recommended in a single day of exercise. And on they went. As it had every day, it soon started to thunder, and we got on our raincoats and put plastic bags around the camera and equipment. It was a really good trail, and fortunately it did not rain hard until we got back to the car and had driven down all the switchbacks. What I love most about this part of the letter, aside from the description of taking the time to don their raincoats and cover the camera with a plastic bag, is how excited Annette remains through the hard hike and the rainy weather. These are the days she lives for, 
days of discovering and pushing forward to see the natural world created in part by the tiny insects she studied. And do Lucy and Annette take a day off after their day at the Continental Divide? I bet you know the answer already, but let's hear it from Annette. Today we decided to stay lower, about 8,500, 9,000 feet, and followed a trail up the North Fork of the Colorado River. Two beautiful species of gentian were the highlights of the morning. The inevitable thunderstorms came earlier and drove us back. Lucy mailed two more rolls of film today, numbers 00432-00433. Tomorrow morning we leave Grand Lake going westward. We are glad you are sharing our letters with the Fulfords and the Brinkmans. Love, Annette. I hope that the photos Lucy took at the Continental Divide, and so dutifully sent to Elizabeth Brockschlager to have developed, still exist somewhere, perhaps in an archive, waiting to be discovered. Their frames, however grainy, would offer important clues about how Rocky Mountain National Park has and hasn't changed in the past half century. More than that, though, I imagine they would capture the wonder of two sisters whose adventures on the road fuel their passion for conservation. In our next and final episode, we follow Lucy and Annette as they complete their road trip and head home, just in time for Annette's 80th birthday. Thank you for listening to Dear Elizabeth, a serial podcast brought to you by the Lloyd Library and Museum in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. This series is part of the Lloyd Research Fellowship and was conceived and produced by Lloyd Fellow Elissa Yancey. Sound design and mixing by Ohio native Ryan McClendon. Our special thanks to Dr. Teresa Cully, who voices Lucy Brown's letters, and Anita Buck, who voices Annette Brown's letters. For more information about the series and the collection that inspired it, please visit the Lloyd at lloydlibrary.org. 